That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to pray, and then we'll read the chapter together. Let's pray. Lord, we do invite you to be here in the midst of this time where we study your word. God, I'm reminded of the passage of scripture that tells us that the natural man cannot discern the spirit, uh, spiritual things. And um, Lord, we know that your word is um, its spirit. It's breathed out by you. And God, it is dynamic and has the power to reach into our lives where we're at today. The power to change our lives, to make us thoroughly equipped, God, for everything that you have. To instruct us in the way of righteousness, to rebuke and to correct. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, through your Word, that you'd have your will with us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, knowledge, and wisdom of who you are. God, that we would grow in our relationship with you as a result of studying your word. Father, we pray for our fellowship. Lord, we lift up um, the Sunday school teachers in the back this morning who are there with our children. We ask, God, that you would pour a special blessing upon them, that you would equip them, Lord, to teach our kids so that our kids would grow to know and to love you, to serve you. God, that they'd be protected from the the lies and the deceptions of the enemy that are poured out into this world today all around us. God, we live in such a dark place as we see the time grow near for your return. But God, you are the light and you've put your spirit inside of us and you've called us, God, to shine as lights into this dark world. And Father, as we come together to be renewed and strengthened in you, I pray, God, that we would go from this place this morning full of courage, full of your power, God, so that the world may see you and know you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's struggling with, struggling, God, with who they are in you, struggling with the weights and burdens of this life, I pray, God, that they would find um, a renewal, a reset in you today. And, God, that you would um, reach into their lives and let them know, God, that you're in love with them and that you're for them. And not, not, not even their own sin, our own sin, can separate us, God, from the love that you have for us because of your grace and your mercy, but that through confession and repentance. God, you're there, faithful and just to forgive. Lord, we love you, and we give you this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in Genesis chapter 38, continuing on, it tells us in verse 1, it says very clearly, it says, it came to pass at that time, and that should direct our attention back to what we had previously been reading and studying through to know exactly what at that time is referring to. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at that and we'll connect the dots as we begin to go through this. But it came to pass at that time that Judah, one of the 12 sons we know of, of Jacob, uh, departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Horiah. And Judah saw there a daughter of the Canaanite who was named, whose name was Shua. 
And he married her, and he went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur, which is short for error. No, just kidding. Ur. So she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Some people say, oh no. And she conceived and yet again bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Shezib when she bore him. So we know that from this, a few things. And, and um, should underline um, not only where Jacob went to, but where he resided and, and what took place while he was there in these first verses. It says, Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and, name, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass... When he went to his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore the Lord killed him also. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend, Hira the Adolamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his, to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a goat, a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. It's a crazy chapter, huh? So she rose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judas sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. So she returned to Judah. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you do not, and you have not found her. And it came to pass 
About three months after that, Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she she is with child by harlotry. And so Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. And so Judah acknowledged him and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at that time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one pulled out his hand and the midwife took the scarlet thread and bound it on the hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Sarah, or Zira. All right, I just want to make a little clarification before we begin. This is one of the chapters that, um, if we weren't teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I would probably just skip right over, continue on with the story of, of, of Joseph. But it's here, and there is wonderful things here for us to learn that God has to speak to us this morning. Um, but we need to back up a little bit and, and connect some dots in, in order to get some context and see how this all relates to the overall story of what uh, we're being told here in the book of Genesis. Now, in the previous chapter, we saw the focus shift from Esau, Jacob's brother, and um, Esau and his descendants to back to Jacob uh, and, and his descendants. And in doing so, we were told in verse 2 of chapter 37, that um, we would now be reading about, quote-unquote, the history of Jacob, right? And even though this relates to all 12 of Jacob's sons, we see that Jacob's youngest son from last week's study, um, Joseph, that he would be the center of the attention. He would be the one by which God would now be revealing what he was doing in and through Jacob's family. And actually, That story continues on to almost the very last chapter of the book of Genesis. Yet when we come to the events in this, um, that are recorded in this very next chapter, there once again seems to be this interruption, something that seems to be out of place. And um, and, uh, especially in light of the fact that when you, if you've read ahead and you, you read chapter 39, what you see is, is that the, 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 we, we immediately return uh, or our attention is immediately brought back to the life of Joseph, the events that took place um, after he had been sold into slavery by his brothers, where we left off last week. And also, um, things seem to be out of place, because this chapter is one that seems to have absolutely no redeeming aspect to it at all, as it's filled with accounts of death, sin, and um, deception. In fact, one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, J. Vernon McGee, you guys know about him? He, he, he uh, speaking about this chapter, he says this. This chapter, friends, as J. Vernon McGee would say, this chapter seems to be about as necessary as a fifth leg on a cow. 
And I like that because on the, on the, on the surface reading, you, you kind of get that impression. It's like, why is this here? Is this really necessary for us to have all these, these, these events laid out before us? But when we lay these events out on a timeline, we see that they actually took place during the time of this Joseph story that we're being told, which started last week in chapter 37 and goes on to the end of the book of Genesis. Remember, when we were studying about Joseph, we're told that he was 17 when he was sold by his brothers. Remember, he'd had the dreams, he'd be given the coat of many colors, and he'd been sent out to his father into the fields, and there his brothers conspired against him. And um, he was only 17 when that took place. And when we, if you read ahead, when you get to chapter 41, what you'll find out is that Joseph was 30 years old when he was elevated by Pharaoh to be second in command over all of Egypt. And we know that it was very difficult years for Joseph. You know, he was, he was sold into Egyptian slavery. He was put into the house of Potiphar, which we're going to read about. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And in turn, he ended up in prison. He has these highs and these lows. And in prison, he helps out two men and um, asks only that they would remember him when they're released. And they, and they don't. And, and, um, and we know that through God's providential hand that, again, Joseph was raised up to be in second in command over all of Egypt. Well, that all takes place within a 13-year period of time. And when we add those 13 years to the seven years of plenty, which was in some of the dreams that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh, and then the first two years, there's told be a total of seven years of famine, but and when we add those 13 years to the seven years of plenty and the first two years of famine, that will pass before Joseph's brothers come into Egypt and there's this reconciliation that takes place between them. When you do all the math, what you see is on a timeline, there's a 22-year period of time, a 22-year space of time that, 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 that we're working with. And, and the events, I point that out because the events that are recorded for us here in chapter 38, which tells about Judah and his family, all take place during this 22 years that we're that we're that we're we're knowing that Joseph's gone when he's not here. But listen, even though these things can fit into a timeline of events, and so when we keep in the contextual flow of things, we still have to ask this question, as as many of you probably are, and as well as I have as well, and even Jay Vernon McGee, who who made that wonderful statement, we have to ask this question: why has God seen fit to give us the account of these events? in such detail, I mean, withholding absolutely nothing. And as we begin to answer this question, which really has a few different answers, we must consider, once again, the overall context, because it's through the record of these sinful things um, that Judah has chosen and, and, and did choose to do that we see a contrast. We begin to see a contrast as they are lined up next to the good and the honorable things that are documented in the life of Joseph that we're going to be read about. And as we examine this contrast, as we kind of take this pause as we, before we re-step back into the life of Joseph, as we see this contrast, what we're going to see is that God is once again exampling something for us. He's exampling a warning to us as his children. And in, in, in exampling that warning through the life of Judah, in a contrast to the life of Joseph, God is presenting a choice for us to make a choice to be like judah 
who clearly give way to the lust of this flesh and, and, and really in the end reap the fruit that is produced from those seeds? Or God is saying a choice, presenting with a choice to give way to His Spirit, to be patient, like we were seeing in the video this morning, to take up the banner, to be the tortoise that wins the race, that continues on in the name of Jesus Christ, even though it gets hard, even though the, lo- the race continues. And a choice to give way to the Spirit of God, and in return, as Joseph did, to reap the eternal things of God. And that's seen in Joseph's life. And this is something that Paul would write about in his letter to the church in Galatia, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. He said, Do not, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap the Spirit of everlasting life. And therefore, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And if you put that in context of Joseph's life, who endured much suffering and yet remained faithful to God, we see the contrast. We see what God's calling us to Even today in our own lives, as we live in a world that's filled with darkness, as I prayed, as we live in a world that's constantly appealing to the desires of our flesh, that we fight against, you know, principalities and powers of darkness that tempt us to sin against God and to live in a place of disobedience, you know, to not live with that banner of Jesus Christ before us, to with boldness and courage. But yet Paul reminds us that if we do so, even when it's hard, If we don't grow weary while doing good, that we're going to reap in the end a bountiful harvest. That we're planting seeds into righteousness that will spring forth into everlasting life. Now before we make our way through this chapter, I want to point out the importance of this chapter that also lies in the fact that this chapter is the next in the ongoing documentation of the genealogy of the Messiah. And if you didn't have information that's given to us in in the new testament account and in chronicles and even in the book of ruth you would never suspect that these people in this chapter would be people that would be recorded as um, um, those who would be in the genealogy of jesus christ certainly you would go these people don't deserve that yet that's what we see this is the ongoing documentation of the genealogy of the Messiah. And, and, and um, this chapter is, in light of that, we see that it's also the next to document those amazing, amazingly sinful things that many men and women who made up the genealogy, at least the human side of the genealogy of Jesus, were all involved in. And I point that out because the fact that Jesus' earthly genealogy down through the tribe of Judah was full of men and women who failed, that it was full of men and women who gave in to sin just like we do, it gives us this incredible example, this awesome picture of God's amazing grace because it demonstrates for us how God uses the weak and foolish things of the world for His eternal plans, for His wonderful purposes, 
And he does so in spite of our failures. And I don't know about you, but that should give us encouragement this morning. Is, is even though we may not do things like Judah did here, we can at least look at that and go, man, if God can use a messed up family like that, he can certainly use us. Or maybe you go, man, my family's just as messed up as that, but yet there's still, still hope for us. So if you'll join with me and look back to to, to the first five verses of this chapter, I want to reread these and, and kind of set the stage for what we're going to go through. And it says, again, very significant, it says, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and he visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And it says, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain, daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her. And he went into her, and we know that she conceived, and she had these three sons. And there was some issues with these three sons, but we're also told that during this period of time that Judah was dwelling in a place called Shezbiz. Now, Judah, if you think back to the last chapter and the account of what his brothers, uh, what Joseph's brothers had done to him, we know that Judah had been an active participant in the plan to harm his brother Joseph, right? Not only in a, an active participant in the plan to harm his brothers, we know that he was also an active participant in the deception, in the plan to deceive his father into believing that their younger brother had been devoured by a wild beast. In fact, if you look back to verse 26 of chapter 37, we see, and I think this is significant, we see that Judah is singled out by name. He's singled out by name as the one who, in the end, made the suggestion to sell his brother um, rather than kill him because they could profit from it. Now, we know that he, had, he, he could care less about Joseph's life, just like the rest of his brothers at this point. But he, made the, he said, you know, why should we kill him when we can make a little money off of him? And even though we're not told... And, and I, I wonder why we're never told this, but I think we're given a little insight into this chapter, and I want to kind of expound on it. But we're never told, even though we're never told how Judah and his brothers felt about what they had done, once they had done it, once it was all over, we read here in verse 1 where it tells us that at that time, right, that at that time that when this had all taken place, that at that time, meaning after what had been done to Joseph, we see that Judah made a decision. He made a decision to depart. To depart from his brothers, whom he had conspired with. And perhaps Judah had feelings of regret for what he had done. And he couldn't stand the guilt or the conviction and being around his brothers whom he had conspired with and around his father who was mourning the loss of his most favorite son whom Judah had deceived. Maybe all of that was just too much for Judah. But rather than confess to what had been done and repent of, 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 of his of his deception and, and of his betrayal, uh, we see that Judah separated. He separated himself and he departed and he went to visit an Adolamite, a man by the name of Hira. The point is, 
hidden and unconfessed sin causes separation. And if you've ever been in that place in your own life where you've sinned and you've been embarrassed and the enemy's come and and he's tricked you into the second place of deception saying that confession and repentance is not a good thing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The hidden sin causes separation. You don't want to be around those who are of the light. It causes separation. And even though it may seem like running away during those times will make things better for us, the fact of the matter is is that running from our problems or trying to run away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the fact of the matter is, is it always makes things worse. It never makes things better. And such was the case for Judah. In light of this, we need to see that there's always a beginning. Guys, there's always a beginning place. A starting place where we begin to plant the seeds that will spring up into corruption. And for Judah, at this time, it clearly began with his decision to depart from his brothers rather than yielding to the conviction that he certainly must have been feeling and confess and repent to what he had done. Consequently, when, when, when Judah made the decision to leave his brothers and leave the land that God had told him to dwell in, we see that things did not get better for him. Rather, his life changed, and it changed for the worse. Now, even though we can see an outward reason for why Judah may have departed at that time from his brothers, we need to look a little deeper, not only so we can see it at a heart level for ourselves, but also see the heart level or the heart motivation behind what was going on for Judah and the reason for why he was drawn away from his family at this heart level and the reason for why he was willing to go live in a land and dwell in the land that God had not called him to. And we don't have to look any further than God's word to see the heart motive behind it for Judah and even in our own lives because in James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 it tells us, it says this, it says when each one is tempted, when he is drawn away by his own, excuse me, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Why was Judah drawn away? Why did he separate? Because he was drawn away by his own desires. He was enticed. Then it says in verse 15, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And you notice the pattern here? We see that evident in Judah's life. And it goes on, and sin, it says, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And such was the case with Judah and his sons. And according to what we read here in James and what we see through the rest of chapter 38 as we just read through, we see that that it's apparent that Judah had left his brothers, that he had left the place that God had called him to dwell in so that he may further give way to the desires of his flesh. This is what I'm pointing to. In other words, just as much as Judah was running away from something, he was also running to something you see that? And often we think that we're just trying to escape the problem. We're just trying to hide from the sin. But there's a heart issue that goes on deeper. And the Bible tells us that not only are we running away and, and remaining in a place of disobedience, there's always another side to it. The other side of the coin that says, you're not just running away from something, you're running to something. 
And, and, and the point is, is if we choose the alternative, if we choose to repent, if we choose to confess in those situations, in those times where we've stumbled and we've fallen into sin, we're turning to God and turning away from our sin. But when we're not, we're isolating, we're separating, turning away from God and turning further to the desires of our flesh. In light of this, it's clear that running away from hidden sin and the problems that we've gotten ourselves into as a result of sin is never an opportunity for a fresh start. Sometimes we think that, right? Sometimes it's, it's a deception that we live in. And perhaps it's a deception that Judah even thought, I just need to get away. I need to get away from my father. I need to get away from my brothers. I need to get away from those memories and the things that I've done and it'll give me this fresh start, this new life. And we think it's a fresh start to do what is good. But on the contrary, it's always an opportunity for us to sin all the more. And in turn, sow these seeds of our flesh. And this is evident in Judah by his decision then to see a Canaanite daughter and marry her. Someone who was not of the family of God. Remember, here in verse 1, it tells us that Judah had originally set out but was he going to live there? No, he set out to visit. I'm going to go visit my friend, the Dolomite. He had set out to, 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 to visit a friend. But when he, according to verse 2, when he saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite, he married her. So in this, the fact that Judah left his brothers and married a Canaanite woman reveals this heart's desire to do what he wanted to do in spite of what he knew was right. It was a continuation of a behavior that had already begun to develop in him. For he knew it was right. And he knew it was not right for him, in addition to what he had done, but to take this Canaanite wife. Remember, Proverbs chapter 18, guys, verse 1 says this. It tells us this. A man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. A man who seeks to separate himself, a man who seeks to isolate himself, seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. And the point is, is when isolation and separation, when there's isolation and separation, they go hand in hand with seeking to do things our own way and abandoning doing things God's way. But the fact of the matter is, is giving into our own desire will eventually give birth to more sin. It's not a turning around. It's not a turning away. And ungodliness and sin and ungodliness and such was the case for Judah. And as a result of separating from his family and as a result of his union to Shua, this Canaanite woman, we see that Ur, we're told that he had three sons. Or he had, that Jacob or Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And what we're told is that all three of these guys were ungodly. Two specifically are given the title of wicked. And in verse 6 it says, Then Judah again, he took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And this is where the story gets... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know the right words. But um, her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah 
said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that an heir would not be his. And not only that, according to this custom, which we're going to talk about, not only would the heir not be his, but what this also meant is that half of his possessions would then go to this other son in the name of his brother. There was a lot to it. And so he knew that it would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. So as we look at this and we see this, this in verse 7 tells us in a very simple and matter-of-fact way that Jacob's firstborn son, whose name was Ur, he was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that the Lord killed him. And I don't know about you, but that's fascinating to me. It's sad. But it's fascinating to me, considering, and I, and I looked, and if, if I'm wrong, please point it out to me, but I made sure, and I went back through, and I studied some things out, this is, this is the only person in the Bible whom this is spoken of in this way. And it makes me wonder just how wicked this guy must have been. I keep thinking, what did he do? Because in the Bible, there's accounts of some pretty wicked guys that God just didn't go, okay, you're dead. There's this whole story of, 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 of God calling them into this place of repentance and bearing with them in patience and extending grace and compassion over, even, even, even Pharaoh, right? Over and over and over again, God dealt with Pharaoh to the point where finally God said, okay, enough, Pharaoh, your heart's hardened, it's over. But here we're simply told, and, and I don't doubt that God did that with this guy. I don't think God, by his nature, is this God that just goes, oh, you're wicked, and you're done. God is merciful, he's gracious, and his, his person, the person of God, continues throughout. But, but for the sake of this story and the sake of the account to make a point about Judah and where he had gone and what he had done and the results and the consequences of his actions, we're simply told that his son was wicked, the fruits of what Judah had done, bore forth this and brought forth the son whom God said, you're done. And it fascinates me. But there is also this second son of Jacob's, Onan. And his wickedness is revealed to us, where it's explained a little bit to us, and it's revealed by the fact that even though he's willing to take his brother's wife, as his father had commanded, we see that he was unwilling to to fulfill his duty and give her a child. And at that time, the command that Jacob had spoken to Onan was in accordance to a custom called the Leverite, which simply means that by taking his brother's widow as a wife, that he would then produce an heir for his brother, that the name of his brother would be perpetuated, and he would raise up his offspring. But Onan was selfish. He was so selfish that he would not build up his own brother's house. His brother. And we see that he only, furthermore, we see that he only took Tamar as his wife in order to use her for his own personal pleasures. And this displeased the Lord, and so he killed him too. And then there was Jacob's third son, Shelah who, we're told, was initially too young to carry on his brother's names. At this time, both of his brother's were, names were, were in play. And, and, and he, was, he, was un, he was too young to begin with to do what was expected of him in accordance to this Leverite custom. But when Shelah was grown, we're told that, that Tamar was not given to him as wife, 
And, and even though the, the, the text suggests to us that Jacob was afraid that Shelah would also die like his brother, we see that, that the text suggests that Jacob was one who never required his younger son to, to marry her like he did with Onan. The fact of the matter is, is that Shelah, who knew these things, could have chosen to do what was right on his own. He could have chosen to not only honor his brother, but to honor Tamar by marrying her, but he did not. Now, this Leverite custom, which at this time was before the law that was given to Moses had been given by God, it would be something that God would eventually solidify and codify when he gave his law to to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this practice of marrying a widow to her brother-in-law, which had its beginning here in the book of Genesis and became law, is detailed for us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, specifically in verses 5 through 10. It speaks about it, and it goes on to speak even more about this, 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 um, this kinsman redeemer that, that we don't have really time to go into much detail about. But in that passage of Scripture, God said if the older brother... Who, who was married, died, specifically died without any children, then the younger brother or the next of kin, a kinsman redeemer, was to marry her and then produce children so that an heir might be raised up in the brother's name. And this law had been given by God. It was a good thing because it fulfilled two purposes. And the first was to preserve the name of the deceased and ensure that the land that was given as an inheritance by God and all the possessions that came along with it would remain in the family to the heir who had been born. It was a very significant thing. But more importantly, this law that was given in Deuteronomy, uh, this law ensured the care and the provision, cared for, or ensured for the care and, and for the provision of the woman who had been widowed. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a law of compassion. And the greatest example of this is found in the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful story there, in which, which records this awesome story of sacrificial love between a, a man named Boaz who acted as a kinsman redeemer for this woman who was named Ruth. But guys, as we look at the, the, this account, we see that with Judah's unwillingness to do what was right, by making sure there was an heir and neglecting, again, his responsibility to care and provide for Tamar, what he did is he put her in a very difficult, put her in a very desperate place. And I suspect it wasn't long before Tamar understood, before she realized that Judah, who was not an honorable man, I'm sure it wasn't very long before she understood that he had absolutely no intentions of giving Shela to her. So we see and we read, we're told in the account that when this opportunity arose, Tamar, she sought to take care of the problem on her own. And she did this drastic thing of disguising herself as a harlot so that she may have a child with Judah. And in verse 12 we read on, it says, Now in the process of time... Jacob's wife died, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, excuse me. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, and he and his friend Hira the Dolomite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, 
your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and that she was not given to him as a wife. I want to read down a little bit further because I want to get back to this one section we want to talk about with the staff and the signet ring. So follow along with me again. It says in verse 15, it says, When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a harlot because she had covered her face. And then he turned to her by the way and said, Please, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And so she said, What? will you give me that you may come into me? And she said, and he said in verse 17, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? In other words, something that I can hold on to until you make good on your payment. And then he said, what shall I give you? And she said this. And understand, this was no light thing that she was asking for. She said, I, I, I want your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. And then it simply says, and then he gave them to her. He went into her and she conceived by him. And so we see that when this opportunity, perhaps it was the very first opportunity, we don't know. First, when this opportunity presented itself, we see that Tamar acted with deception. And in, 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 in acting in deception, she lured her father-in-law Judah into this immoral union with a prostitute, or so he thought, right? Not that it would have made it any less wrong it's just that he was he was deceived on one level and it's interesting that (laughs) jacob the deceiver and now his descendants this whole family is just riddled with this this family sin of deception right that keeps coming in that keeps coming in that keeps coming in and once again we see this brought forth as well but in entering into this union with with Tamar, the harlot, the one who's pretending to be something she's not at this point. Verse 18 tells us that Judah agreed to give Tamar his signet, which was a ring, his cord, which was, which, which was a bracelet, and his staff as a pledge to assure that he would come back to her and pay, the, and pay her the agreed-upon price of, of one young goat from his flock. But when Judah obviously tried to retrieve them from, um, from her through his friend Hira, um, she was nowhere to be found. She went back and she had put on her clothes in the morning and, and she was kind of hiding out. Now, it's important to point out that the signet ring had a seal on it. It was, it was a very special thing, your signet ring. It had a seal on it that represented Judah's identity. And the bracelet, it was, it was a sign, it was an identification of Judah's wealth. And um, his staff would have represented his position or the place of authority that he had. So all of these things, these three things were very, very valuable, way more valuable than any young goat. And it would be these things that Tamar would later return to identify Judah as the father of her children. But... Considering the importance of these things, the value of these things, doesn't it seem odd to you that Judah would be so willing to give them up in an exchange for a moment of pleasure? Yet, I think it causes us to ask ourselves, what is it that we have been so quick to exchange for the sin that we've given way to? 
Because the fact that Tamar playing the role of the prostitute, the fact that she would ask for these three things, and the fact that Judah would turn over these three things so willingly that he might fulfill the lust of his flesh, what it does for us, guys, is it reveals something. It reveals that hidden cost of sin. A cost that we never typically fully account for when we're carried away by the desires and lusts of our flesh. You see, sin always makes a promise. Sin always makes a promise that it cannot deliver. A promise to satisfy us. A promise to bring forth a fulfillment in the areas of our lives that we feel we are lacking. That if we just get this thing and put it in, that it's all going to be better. That's what sin promises. And for Judah, he sought sought the pleasures of his flesh, as we see here, in an attempt to be comforted in his time of grief. But the truth is, as you know this very well, and as we see this in Judah's life, is that sin never satisfies. Sin never fills us up. In fact, what sin does is it leaves us in a place of emptiness, a place of brokenness, as it takes everything that is important and precious to us. And like Jacob, sin will rob us of our identity, of our possessions, and even our position. And this is not God's will for any of our lives. It was not God's will for Jacob's life. It's not God's will for any of our lives. And this is why God, the Scriptures tell us that He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sin, to give us a new life, and to satisfy every need that we have. In fact, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy us. And Jesus, with His own words, promised this in John chapter 6, verse 35, saying, I... I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And this is possible because Jesus is the only one, guys. He's the only one who can ultimately bring us into a right relationship with God. Jacob was not in this right relationship. As a matter of fact, remember, he's running away from something and running to something that only took him further and further and further away from this right relationship with God. But yet in Psalm verse 107, verses 8 and 9, it speaks about God and being in a right relationship with Him. And it says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of man. Why? For He satisfies the longing soul and He fills the hungry soul with goodness. God is able to do for us nothing Everything, God's able to do for us everything that the world cannot do, that our our flesh cannot do, that the things that we pursue cannot do. And this is what Judah was in need of. Judah was in need of this right relationship with God. He was in in need of being filled and satisfied again in his time of need by God. But he did not turn to God. Instead, he once again gave way to the desires of his flesh, and his sin gave birth as Tamar conceived by him and gave birth to two sons. You see a cycle here? The cycle of sin, the cycle of of serving self. 
I know it's something that we've all experienced in our own lives one way or the other. But it does not have to be that way. It does not have to be so. And for Judah, things were made worse as we read on when we see that he dismissed his own sin. He disregarded his own sin in order to judge and condemn another, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, when he found out that she had played the harlot and become pregnant in doing so. Talk about being caught in your own trap, right? But just like we often are, Judah only wanted the quote-unquote sinner to be judged. He only wanted the sinner to be judged until he discovered that he too was the sinner. It reminds us of David and his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And Nathan the prophet coming, explaining the story about a rich man who had taken a sheep, the only sheep, this little lamb of this one poor guy. And David cries out for condemnation and judgment to be put upon this man, whoever he was. And Nathan stands back and he looks at David and he says, you, David, are the man. Referring to the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. And we see this same situation here with Judah. And in verse 24, it tells us, if you see there, and it says it came to pass that at about three months after that Judah was told, saying, hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotly. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And when she was brought out, she sent out, sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong. And she had the staff and the bracelet and the, and the singet ring. And she said, by, by whom these things belong, this is the one who I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. And so it says in verse 26, Judah, certainly humbled at this point, acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah my son and he never knew her again now this is not the end of the story and there's a few verses that that finish out this account which talks about the birth of these two sons and the final part of this story for us guys is here because it's the redemptive part the final part of this story provides the significance of the whole account and it illustrates for us the amazing grace of God. And I'm going to close out with this this morning and I'm going to invite Noah to come back up and if you guys who are going to be leading us in prayer this morning um, uh, would get prepared to do that, I'll call you up in just a minute. But this final part of the story provides not only the significance of the whole account, but like I said, it illustrates for us the amazing grace of God. In that, guys... In that God, by giving Tamar twins, Perez and Zerah, and through them we see that the line of Judah continued because of Tamar, we see that this is a wonderful thing. That the providential hand of God was still at play and was greater than the sin of the sinner. And more importantly, through the line of Judah, down through his son Perez, we see that the line of promise would carry on to provide a savior for all of mankind. 
For we know that Jesus Christ was born to those descendants of the line of Judah. And in Matthew chapter 1, oddly enough, both Judah and Tamar, along with Perez and his future descendant Boaz, who's mentioned in the book of Ruth, who would act as a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, all of these people are listed in the human side of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. And in light of this, we're reminded of the fact that God, guys, God has a perfect plan for your life, for my life. God has a wonderful purpose for our lives. And no matter how bad it seems like we've messed things up, God is always there with His amazing grace, ready to forgive us, to hear our confession, with arms opened up as we turn, as we repent and come back to Him. And He's faithful to do that work in us and through us to bring forth His plan, to bring forth His purposes, just like He did with Judah just like he did with Tamar, just like he did with Perez, and on down and on down and on down until he gets to the Messiah. In all of these things, it shows us that God's love for us is greater than our sin. God's faithfulness to us is greater than our faithlessness. And that God can use the weak of the foolish things like you and I to bring forth his wonderful purposes in and through our lives even today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the fact that um, you're on the throne. And you remain on the throne in times of sin, in times of hardship. And God, that you never leave us or forsake us. God, that you're faithful to finish this work in us that you've, com- that you've begun to complete it. And we're grateful, God, that as you're on the throne there, that you act as a great high priest, as we're told in the book of Hebrews. Our priest, that who we can come to, the one who makes intercession for us, the one that's established us as worthy to be in the presence of God, our Creator. Lord, I pray if anybody here is struggling with guilt, condemnation, because of their sin, because of their fault, because of their failures, I pray, God, that they would see that they are good enough when they come to you in Jesus. That you're accepted. That they're accepted by you. That they're forgiven by you. That they're desired by you. And that even their own faults, even our own faults and our own failures, Lord, can't deter the perfect plan, the good plan that you have for our lives. Father, as we set this time aside to continue to worship you, to pray, to make our requests known, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has been struggling with these things, Lord, that they would come forward and and that they would confess, like it says in James chapter 3, that we would confess our sins one to another and that we would pray so that we might be healed. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to come up and receive prayer from one of the leaders in the church. And Father, as we pray to you, we ask God that you would answer our prayers in accordance to your perfect will. And Father, that we would submit 
that we would humble ourselves before you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Seth, if you want to dim the lights, if you guys want to come forward, Noah's going to lead us in a couple of songs of worship to close out, and you guys come forward and receive prayer.